you. It's really nice to be here. Maybe we could start with a survey. Who thinks sustainability is still possible? <laughs> All right, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, uh, <clears throat> it's going to be a close thing, but I think uh, there, there is still some, um, some hope out there, and I think that's what we need to uh, uh, actually emphasize and begin to think differently and frame this issue differently in a much more positive way if we really have any chance of achieving this goal of a sustainable and desirable future. Um, <clears throat> why do we have to do this now? Well, I think it's clear to many of you. Have any, have any of you heard the term Anthropocene before? Okay, so you know, we live in a new geologic era. This map is, is scaled by population, and it's showing the nighttime satellite uh, imagery to show where, where some of the uh, economic activity is around the world. Uh, but, you know, we don't live in an empty world any longer. We live in a world that is, is heavily influenced by human activities. And, in fact, we have to start thinking of the whole system and how it's interconnected. Um, and also at a, at a global scale, we're affecting things, you know, not just regionally and nationally, but, but globally. So I think it requires a different vision, you know, of humans' place in the system. Um, you mentioned the one article that we did, and there's a larger report I'll mention that we did for the UN that, that is titled, uh, you know, Creating a Sustainable and Desirable Economy in Society in Nature. So recognizing that these systems are embedded in the rest of the natural world. Um, and, you know, we need an adequate vision not only of how the world is, so our scientific understanding of that, those interconnections, um, the, the, by, of the, the, the functioning of the ecological life support system, but also of uh, human psychology. And I think there's a lot of recent research on what's been called the science of happiness or positive psychology, trying to understand what actually does contribute to people's quality of life and how do we maximize that. And uh, <clears throat> as, I'll, as I'll talk about, it's very clear that that's um, uh, very different than simply, you know, the, the more we produce and consume, the better off we are. Uh, that's not the way humans actually behave. Um, it's also important that we have a vision of how we would like the world to be. You know, there's, this has been shown to be quite an effective way of getting change in, in businesses and in communities. You have to have a vision of where you're going. As the great American philosopher Yogi Berra once said, if you don't know where you're going, you end up somewhere else. <laughs> so <clears throat> uh, that's, I think, is, is something we really need to spend a lot more time on, is painting that picture of where it is we want to go and making it clear that that place can be a much higher quality of life. It's not a sacrifice uh, to achieve this sustainable and desirable future. It's really a sacrifice not to. Our tools and analytical techniques, our implementation strategies and policies, et cetera, um, have to be consistent with that evolving vision. So we know from the science of complex systems that these systems are nonlinear, they're complex, they're adaptive, they have thresholds, they have tipping points. We can't expect um, the behavior in these systems to be nice and gradual. <clears throat> um, this is from a paper by Tim Lenton a few years ago that just points out some of the tipping elements in the climate system. You know, that melting of the ice sheets is probably the best well-known, most well-known of these, but there's several other potential tipping points that could cause the climate to change much more quickly than you know, is currently being uh, projected. But these sorts of tipping points and thresholds occur you know, throughout <clears throat> uh, these complex systems and, and certainly our economy embedded in society and nature is one, one of those. Um, we know that we're approaching or has, have surpassed some fundamental planetary boundaries. Um, is anybody familiar with this paper that, yeah, okay. Um, so you know what we're talking about here. There's some, uh, there's a safe operating space that we can identify um, within this finite planet, and um, we in this paper looked at um, nine different uh, variables uh, and and um, <clears throat> concluded that at least three of those, climate change, biodiversity loss, and uh, the nitrogen cycle, are already well outside the safe operating space. Uh, <clears throat> and certainly, climate has gotten the most attention. Um, <clears throat> biodiversity certainly got a lot of attention. Nitrogen cycle, not quite so much, but I think all of these are important issues that we have to deal with in terms of the sustainability part of this goal. How do we make sure we stay within the planetary boundaries? <clears throat> now, the way this argument is usually framed is, is just that. We have these, you know, these limits, we have to stay within the limits, you know, we have to stop doing what we're doing 
It's not a convenient truth. And <clears throat> therefore, it's not the movie that most people are lining up to go see. Uh, <clears throat> they'd rather, and we, there's a lot of denial out there about, about these issues. Um, <clears throat> so uh, what do we do about that? Well, we can, you know, keep <clears throat> hammering on these points, uh, you know, more and louder and, and et cetera. But I think, in fact, we need a third movie. We need a, a different uh, framing for these issues. You know, we need a movie that says, <clears throat> you know, here's a way that we can achieve a more sustainable and more desirable uh, economy and society and nature, a, more, a better future that does not require <clears throat> that um, economies grow indefinitely, that population grows indefinitely, et cetera. The conventional growth at all costs model is something that, or vision, is something we have to, to uh, get beyond. Um, this is the report I was talking about. You can download this off the web. Uh, we also have a publication from uh, ANU ePress. Uh, also put this out uh, recently, so you can, you can order a hard copy if you'd like. And it goes into some detail about what this vision could look like and also some of the underlying policies uh, that, that we might use to, to get there. So I'll talk around some of those issues today, but if you want more detail, I uh, direct you to that report. <coughs> Um, we also have a, a piece that came out of Nature magazine just um, a few weeks ago. You can pass this one around. Um, <coughs> that talks about why we need to measure progress toward sustainable well-being in a much uh, different way, get beyond the reliance on GDP growth as our fundamental goal. Um, and this, this diagram sort of puts together some of those pieces that we have to recognize we live in a finite planet with, uh, with uh, planetary boundaries that our overall goal really should be sustainable, prosperous, and equitable well-being uh, for humans and the rest of nature. Uh, there's some fundamental human needs that need to be met in order for people to feel this sense of subjective well-being. And they go well beyond simply uh, consuming um, uh, more goods and services, uh, as this list shows. And I'll get into more detail about that. Um, we have to recognize that all of this is built on our fundamental combination of these assets of our natural, our built, our human, and our social capital assets and how they all interact, uh, you know, in terms of the, our, our paradigm for development in order to achieve this goal. Uh, so that's what we fundamentally need is recognition of uh, the rela these relationships and <clears throat> the development of a new paradigm uh, for how we're going to achieve uh, this, this different vision. The key points then in that report are that uh, growth in population and material consumption is obviously, I say obviously because I think it is pretty obvious, it's unsustainable on a finite planet. Uh, there are fundamental planetary boundaries. Um, <clears throat> that growth in material consumption beyond uh, a certain threshold uh, really is not desirable. It has uh, negative side effects, which we can begin to measure and quantify. Um, and uh, it doesn't really lead to increasing uh, well-being. Um, it's not true in all societies uh, or, or economies. Some do need additional growth in consumption, but uh, that con growth in consumption needs to be, I think, within a different paradigm that's much more equitably shared and much more sensitive to uh, the environment. Um, there are viable alternatives that are both sustainable and desirable. They, they're going to require this fundamental change in vision and, and a redesign, really, of the whole system. Um, <clears throat> just to give you one picture of what the old vision is, and that's been driving, I think, a lot of our um, development policies. Uh, this is kind of the, the conventional view of the economy. You have land, labor, and capital, the fundamental you know, factors of production. Land is kind of grayed out because there's an assumption of almost perfect substitutability between these factors. You don't really need land or natural resources. It's kind of a, a luxury good. Um, <clears throat> they produce goods and services, which are then either consumed or reinvested to make more capital so you can produce and consume more you know, in the next period. So there's nothing in this vision that <clears throat> uh, limits the growth of the economy indefinitely, and that, in fact, is the goal. You know, the more, the better. The more we consume, the better off we are. <clears throat> um, and it's really a matter of just you know, utilizing these factors of production in the, uh, in the optimal way to maximize growth. Um, <clears throat> so what's different in this full world vision? First of all, there's the recognition that we live in a closed system, a, cl a materially closed Earth system. Everything has to go somewhere. There are fundamental limits on how much <clears throat> human capital and built capital we can 
inject into the system without damaging the ecological life support uh, functions. There's the recognition that these four basic types of capital or assets are all required um, in some more balanced way to produce conventional goods and services, but also that they directly contribute to human well-being uh, without going, ever going through the, the market system. And they include our, our built capital, our human capital, individual people, and their health and education and, and uh, individual well-being, but also social capital, all of the interactions between people, our formal and informal networks and rules and norms and institutions. You know, the market itself is a form of social capital. <clears throat> and then finally, natural capital, all the, the rest of nature uh, uh, ecosystems, which produce a range of ecosystem services, as they're called, uh, the contributions to human well-being. Um, <clears throat> and also the recognition that human well-being is a much more complex function than simply the more we consume, the better off we are. In fact, you know, beyond a certain fairly low threshold, uh, people are much more concerned with relative consumption rather than absolute consumption. You know, so you're consuming more in order to keep up with the Joneses and to you know, have social status rather than because you really need that consumption. Um, and then there's a whole range of non-consumption oriented um, inputs to well-being, uh, including the contributions of social capital, interactions with friends and neighbors, and family, and the contributions of natural capital, these ecosystem services I'll talk about. <clears throat> so it's a much more complex, I think, and nuanced vision of the world uh, that we need to, to bring on board if we really um, you know, hope to achieve this goal of sustainable and desirable future. Um, <clears throat> the idea of quality of life or well-being, I think, as I said, is getting a lot of attention in the, in the research areas these days. Um, <clears throat> there's been a lot of work surveying people around the world and asking them, you know, how satisfied are you with your life? Um, <clears throat> this idea of subjective well-being. And I'll <clears throat> show a little bit of that kind of data later. Uh, that sense of subjective well-being depends on how this basic set of human needs are being fulfilled. There's, you know, people weight them differently. Depending on their personalities, their cultures, etc. But there's a much longer list than simply the more we consume, the better off we are. As you can see here, you know, participation in decision making, <clears throat> understanding, um, you know, creativity, identity, etc. Uh, this is just one list. There's a there's been a lot of <clears throat> alternatives to this. This one came comes from uh, the work of Manfred Max Neef. Um, so what we can do from a policy perspective is to you know create the opportunities for people to meet those needs and feel the sense of subjective well-being by how we arrange our, our capital assets, our built, our human, our social, and our natural capital, and how we use our time. So <clears throat> one of the fundamental um, components of that, the natural capital component, uh, is um, what's been studied quite a bit. Uh, <clears throat> this is from a report called the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment. Anybody familiar with that report? If you run across that one. Okay, <laughs> one. Uh, uh, this was a big report that the UN did back in, in 2005, and they identified uh, these four basic categories of ecosystem services, provisioning, regulating, cultural, and supporting services, and all, the, all their contributions to various components of human well-being. So, you know, food, fresh water, uh, climate regulations is a key one. Uh, flood regulation, <clears throat> you know, recreational opportunities, <clears throat> recognizing that these services, um, you know, um, contribute quite a lot to human well-being. I'll give you some numbers in a second. Uh, what's missing from this diagram, though, is that to, to provide these services requires, uh, they don't just flow from natural systems into humanity. They require the interaction with these other three types of capital, the social, built, and the human capital. You can't really have services coming from ecosystems if there's no people to benefit from them, if there's no community within which those people live, there's no built infrastructure to facilitate uh, the, <clears throat> the, the living of those people. So it's inherently a complex and, and transdisciplinary effort to try to understand this idea of ecosystem services and how they, and, and sustainable human well-being. Um, <clears throat> there's been a lot of uh, uptake, I think, of this idea and a lot of progress. There's a new Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, kind of the parallel of the IPCC uh, that's now uh, been developed for uh, the ecosystem services side and biodiversity. <clears throat> so that's, uh, that's a new thing that's just come about. I've been involved in setting up something called the Ecosystem Services Partnership, uh, which is an effort to coordinate all of the 
literally thousands of individuals and groups around the, the world who are working on this topic, both from the academic and from the, uh, the uh, management side. So if you're interested in more about what's going on around the world, take a look at that. Um, <clears throat> the academic community, I think, has really been active in this area. This is a chart of the number of papers published on the topic ecosystem services over the last couple of decades. And you can see that's been going up exponentially. It's now, you know, much more than a thousand papers per year that are published on this on this topic. So there's a lot of academic interest in uh, in this going forward. Now, the <clears throat> the most highly cited of those papers is this one that we did back in 1997, where we tried to estimate the total value of all of these 17 ecosystem services, and that you saw that list before, across 16 different biomes. Um, <clears throat> this was a, a meta-analysis, so we looked at all the other studies that had been done and put them all together and came up with a total in the range of 16 to $54 trillion a year as the value of these services, around $33 trillion on average, much larger than global GDP at the time. <clears throat> now, the only thing we didn't um, control in this, in this article was what they put on the cover of Nature, that, that issue. They said pricing the planet. And really, we're not talking about pricing the planet for trade, for exchange of these services. We're saying we need to value those services uh, in order to recognize their contribution in order that we can manage them uh, in a much more effective way. Um, so <clears throat> that, that's an, a, a common confusion, however. Uh, whoops, this is the summary of the results of that paper, uh, just to show you the range of different biomes. And basically, we came up with a a unit value per hectare per year and multiplied by the area and came up with this total. More recently, <clears throat> all of those unit values have been many more studies, as I showed, you know, of ecosystem services over that time period. Uh, so we now have an updated set of unit values for each of these different biomes. <clears throat> and, uh, and from that, we can compare, you know, this is a complex graph. Don't spend any time looking at the actual numbers. I'll just direct you down to the bottom line over here. <laughs> which is we can estimate from that and from changes in land use, um, the, uh, the loss of the val of value of ecosystem services over that period from 1997 to 2011. And we estimate that's in the range of 4.3 to $20.2 trillion per year in terms of lost services due to loss, due to changes in land use largely, loss of coral reefs, loss of uh, coastal wetlands, et cetera. Um, <clears throat> we know, uh, and this is from the Millennium Assessment again, that that uh, you know, conversion of intact ecosystems to intensive farming or small-scale farming in this case leads to a net loss in the total social value. So you're losing uh, some of those ecosystem services, which are extremely valuable, and and uh, and replacing them with uh, with private uh, benefits. We did a study a few years ago to to estimate the benefit-cost ratio of maintaining our current natural capital stock. Um, you know uh, where it, where it is, and not allowing those those land use conversions that we we're talking about. Uh, the scenario we used to, was to expand the reserve network uh, on the terrestrial side by 50 to 15 percent of the terrestrial biosphere and 30 percent of the marine biosphere. That would cost about 45 billion dollars a year to build and maintain that reserve network. But the net benefits, um, the difference between the the value of the intact system and what it could be converted to, was on the order of four to five trillion dollars a year, so <clears throat> a benefit-cost ratio of 100 to 1, and this is conservatively estimated. So it's hard to find better investments, you know, in our, in our economy these days than, than 100 to 1. You know, if you could find one, I'm sure you'd put most of your money in there, but, well, the only better investment I could find was uh, for oil companies investing in uh, political campaigns in the United States, <laughs> which unfortunately turns out to be about 400 to 1. <clears throat> so. Um, you know, this valuation of ecosystem services in some circles is a bit controversial, but I don't think it, it, uh, it really is. I think it's something that we do uh, by default um, all the time. Whenever we make a decision about managing these systems, you're, in, you know, at least implicitly uh, valuing them. So what we're talking about is making that decision <clears throat> much more explicit and uh, trying to understand the implications of these decisions on their values. There's a range of uses for this, these value, valuations of ecosystem services, including just raising awareness, but also revising national income accounts. The um, Australian Bureau of Statistics is now very much involved in incorporating the value of ecosystem services into the national accounts. 
specific policy analyses, you know, uh, land use planning, you want to know what the, the, the change is in the value of your landscape, uh, you know, when you're, when you're implementing different land use plans. So it can be useful for that. Pay, payment for ecosystem services in countries like Costa Rica and Mexico, several other countries, they have systems of, of paying private landowners to produce uh, <clears throat> not just agricultural products, but these ecosystem services, freshwater, biodiversity, ecotourism. And in Costa Rica, for example, it's allowed them to reforest uh, much, of, much of the country. Um, it's a very active area of, of uh, uh, <clears throat> management uh, for these systems. The idea of full cost accounting also is an, a, a, a critical one. <clears throat> Everything we buy in the marketplace, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the prices are wrong. Uh, and they're wrong because they don't include all of these external costs of, the, of damaging our natural ecosystems, et cetera. So, um, you know, we want to get the market to tell a better approximation to the truth so that people can make better decisions, better, better uh, choices uh, when they're buying things. <clears throat> One company that I've been involved with is uh, it's called True Cost out of the UK. And uh, what they do is estimate the external environmental and health costs by company um, of all of the publicly traded companies in, uh, in the UK and the US and other places around the world. Um, to do that, they use a fairly elaborate input-output model uh, so they can look at not just the direct effects of the company's activities, but also the indirect effects through their whole supply chain all the way back through the system. Um, <clears throat> they've done a, um, a report recently <clears throat> uh, that you can download off the web that estimated the, uh, just the primary production and primary processing sectors of the global economy and what the external costs are associated with, with those sectors. Uh, total about $7.3 trillion, or 13% of the global economic output, just from those, those two sectors. Um, <clears throat> Puma and several other companies have taken, beginning to take this seriously, and they have, uh, they're creating now environmental profit and loss statements you know, that include not just uh, the conventional financial profit and loss statements, but also the impacts of their activities on, um, on the environment um, and coming up with some really interesting results. And bringing that down also to the product level so they can, they can say, you know, which variety of shoe that they're producing, you know, has the, the lowest uh, environmental cost and begin to use that to help guide their design behavior uh, going forward. Um, <clears throat> often it's important to aggregate these values up to the regional or the global scale, so if you want to know you know, what's happening with ecosystem services in <clears throat> Australia or in, you know, in Queensland uh, or, <clears throat> or globally, um, we need to aggregate these values and there's a range of techniques that can be used for that. What we used in the nature paper I mentioned was simply to say, okay, well, let's assume there's a, a constant value for each ecosystem type <clears throat> and we can sort of estimate that average and multiply through. You can get more sophisticated than that, and, and a lot of those more recent papers I've, I've uh, shown you are, are beginning to get more sophisticated. Uh, you can get expert opinion to modify those values and say, well, there are some forests that are much more uh, productive of ecosystem services than others. You can, uh, if you have enough studies, you can build a statistical model of, of, uh, of how the value varies depending on other, vari other variables, proximity to population, uh, you know, the extent of the system, et cetera. Um, or you can build, begin to build much more complex, um, spatially explicit uh, kinds of models. I'll give you a quick example of <clears throat> one study that I was involved with and uh, that shows sort of how you go about estimating the value of these ecosystem services. Um, <clears throat> anybody recognize this hurricane, this particular one? <laughs> this is Florida over here and Louisiana over here. This is, this is Hurricane Katrina, <clears throat> um, you know, one of the biggies a few years ago. Um, <clears throat> but what we can do is assemble data on all of the tracks of all of the hurricanes that have occurred you know, over the last several decades. Uh, so we know where they've been. <clears throat> uh, we can plot those tracks and we can look at you know, what's the area of wetlands in the swath of the storm, what's the uh, amount of infrastructure in the swath of the storm. This is from nighttime satellite imagery, so we can get sort of a spatial picture of that. We know the damages that each storm caused. We know um, <clears throat> what the intensity of the storm was. So we can build a little, it's the only equation I'll put up, I promise, um, a little regression model that equates the, you know, the damages, explains the damages from the intensity of the, the wind, the 
wetland area and the, uh, you know, the infrastructure in the swath of the storm. And from that, <clears throat> you can say, well, what's the change? What's the expected change in damages as you increase or decrease the amount of wetlands? So that's the, the avoided costs. How much would the damages be more or less if you had more or less wetlands to protect these areas? <clears throat> and that explains about 60% of the variation in the relative damages <clears throat> across all of the storms that hit the, um, the United States anyway. And from that, we can map the marginal values you know, for each square kilometer and the total value uh, of storm protection for each square kilometer along the coast of the, uh, the US. Uh, you can see from this that the, you know, the bigger numbers, the redder numbers, are where you have those three variables coming together. Where you have a lot of storms to be protected from, you have a lot of um, wetlands to do the protection, and you have a, a, a lot of infrastructure to be protected. So the bottom line is, <clears throat> you know, you have a, um, quite a large value of that storm protection. Quite a range, uh, but a, a large mean and median value, and if you add it all up, it's, uh, it's more than $23 billion a year just in storm protection services. And these are completely off the books. I mean, nobody's keeping track of that <coughs> contribution uh, to human well-being from storm protection. Of course, the Corps of Engineers after Hurricane Katrina, you know, their first reaction was, well, um, we need to build a bigger levee, you know, along the whole coast of Louisiana. And, you know, that was going to be extremely expensive and would start sinking because you're talking about a, a, a deltaic plane uh, that, that they're building it on, and would only have that one service of, of protecting from storms, whereas these horizontal levees, the natural capital, is a, a different way of approaching the problem, would have not only the storm protection services, but also that whole range of other ecosystem services from recreation and fishing, et cetera. Um, <clears throat> so uh, they're, they're beginning now to change their minds about how to manage those coastal systems and restore the coastal wetlands in order to, to provide uh, these ecosystem services. Um, <clears throat> it's also important, I think, to take, if you want to understand sustainability, to take a much longer term view. You know, we are, this is a, um, uh, a project I'm involved with called IHOPE, the Integrated History and Future of People on Earth. So how do we integrate what we know about human history and our emerging uh, information about environmental history uh, <clears throat> in order to understand what happened better in the, in the past and also to help us design a, a better future. This is a pretty complicated graph, I know. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but, you know, the past was complicated. Um, over here are all the uh, technological changes that have occurred. This is a, a, a time on a log scale, you know, starting at 100,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago, 1,000, 100, up to the present. Um, <clears throat> and uh, over here are the technological changes, you know, starting with the, the domestication of dogs and ending with our, you know, our highest achievement, which is Google. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> over here are the different civilizations that have come and gone. And this red line is the temperature record uh, over that time period. And you can see that during the Pleistocene, <clears throat> temperature was quite erratic. We had ice ages and interglacial periods you know, coming quite, quite uh, frequently. It wasn't until the beginning of the Holocene, around 10,000 years ago, that the temperature stabilized and allowed the development of civilization as we know it, essentially. Uh, we're now pushing that line you know, off, <clears throat> off in this direction. And, what, uh, and, the, and the question is, what does that mean for the future of civilization. Um, <clears throat> and you can see all these other lines are the, the growth, the exponential growth of population and gross world product and CO2 emissions, uh, uh, et cetera. So <clears throat> has anybody read uh, Jared Diamond's book, Collapse? Yeah, a few of you. So it's, you know, it's that. I think he's headed definitely in the right direction. How do we put together and make a, a science of the past in order to, to help us design the future? And that's one of the things we're doing. I'll talk a little bit. I'll talk in a bit about um, one modeling exercise we're doing to try to understand the Maya civilization and why they collapsed. <clears throat> um, and that's sort of the next step in all of this, I think, is to be able to build better, more integrated models of humans embedded in ecological systems. How do we understand these complex dynamics <clears throat> um, uh, at, at multiple scales in time and space and complexity? How do we use this process of building models, both conceptual and actual simulation models, to, to help build uh, consensus um, in a more participatory process. Recognizing that all models are wrong and 
but some models are useful. And so we need to build models that are, that are really useful for helping us understand these systems uh, from, uh, you know, also from a, a much longer time perspective. Um, one of these, if you're interested, you can, I'd be happy to send you this, uh, this paper, or you can, I'm sure you can find it, uh, was a model we created called Gumbo, the Global Unified Model, model of the Biosphere. And this is a <clears throat> dynamic simulation model that accounts for, uh, you know, all the different components of the natural capital in the system, uh, but also the uh, anthroposphere, the human part of it, the human, the, human, the built, the, the social capital components, and how those, the natural capital contributes to the well-being of uh, the population in this system. Um, so what are the ecosystem services like and, uh, and how are humans impacting that natural capital and reducing those services, et cetera. So <clears throat> um, this can also be done in a more spatially explicit way. Uh, so we can model these landscapes <clears throat> um, and understand how the patterns of development uh, change uh, the uh, ecosystem services that they're, they're providing. And as I said, uh, you know, allow you to evaluate different land use scenarios and say which ones are going to be uh, actually more productive <clears throat> of not just conventional economic production, but also all of these other ecosystem services we're talking about. Uh, <clears throat> we're trying to apply this at, in a much more multi-scale approach, uh, you know, with a, a system that includes all of these variables, uh, but allows you to run these models at multiple different spatial scales and spatial resolutions, etc. Um, <clears throat> one example is this one I mentioned about the, uh, the Maya civilization. So this is a combined sort of systems dynamics and agent-based model uh, that looks at a whole range of variables for the whole Yucatan Peninsula, you know, over a time period of over 600 years. Um, this one on the top is population density, and this is forest, uh, forest condition as an index of ecosystem services, and there's an elaborate trade network that the Maya developed. We know enough about the history that we can say, well, what can we actually reproduce what actually happened there? And what actually happened there was something that looked pretty much like this, that uh, the Maya survived several drought cycles, but eventually uh, <clears throat> they, they, uh, they didn't survive uh, the last drought cycle, and the, the civilization uh, <clears throat> collapsed, essentially. Um, this shows um, the uh, agricultural yield, the value of ecosystem services, and the trade value. And what we're looking at now is, well, um, since we can sort of reproduce what did happen, can we go back and say, what could they have done differently? Could the, could the Maya have been a sustainable uh, society? Had they limited population? Had they uh, <clears throat> you know, conserved their natural capital more? Had they uh, sort of con uh, limited the, the, uh, the, the extent of the trade network? What we're finding is it's that you know, any one of those things by themselves would not have saved them, in a sense. Uh, they had to do a combination, <clears throat> um, you know, the full, a full package. Um, anyway, that's the natural capital component. I think the social capital component is equally important in terms of uh, building a sustainable society. Um, <clears throat> has anybody seen this book, The Spirit Level by Wilkinson and Pickett? Anybody run across that? Um, <clears throat> okay, Jenny, I think you've, you've been doing a lot of reading. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> this is a really important study, I think, that looked at the relationship between income inequality across countries and this whole range of, of social problems and finds that, in fact, there's a very strong relationship. Uh, the, the more unequal a society is, uh, the, the more homicides, the more imprisonment, the lower trust, you know, more obesity, uh, lower life expectancy, etc. cetera. Uh, so <clears throat> uh, there's, you know, this is a, a critical uh, finding, I think, and it's not just uh, the poor people who suffer in these, in these high inequality uh, societies. It's also the, the rich people because they're spending a lot more of their time trying to stay rich and trying to, you know, getting stressed out, uh, not really being able to, to uh, uh, <coughs> uh, benefit uh, from the, uh, uh, the amount of money that they're, they're, they're getting. This was a very interesting study uh, showing people's perceptions of this <coughs> inequality. This was uh, 5,000 Americans, and they were asked um, what they thought the distribution of wealth in the country was. And that's this, this middle graph, uh, what they thought it was. <clears throat> this is the top 20%, you know, in this graph, uh, more than 50% of, of, uh, of the wealth, and so on, <clears throat> to the bottom 20%. Um, compare that with the actual distribution of wealth in the United States, which is this top graph. <clears throat> so much, 
more unequally distributed. And then compare that with what um, they, they would like it to be. And this, this was interesting too, because it, it was not um, uh, <clears throat> affected by the political affiliations of the, of the people they were surveying. It was across the board. Uh, people wanted the, the wealth distribution to be much more like this. In fact, this is much closer to the wealth distribution of Sweden you know, than it is to the wealth distribution of the United States way up here. So <clears throat> um, it's not that people really want this kind of wealth distribution. They would prefer it to be much more equitably distributed. And in fact, that would have a much better effect on a whole range of social, social uh, issues, uh, as we're seeing. Um, <clears throat> this is a graph of the relationship between per capita GDP and the surveys of life satisfaction. So you can see clearly from this, you know, at first, there's quite a strong relationship. The more per capita GDP, the, the more life satisfaction. Beyond a certain point, fairly low, you know, <clears throat> uh, per capita GDP, uh, it, it kind of flattens out. <clears throat> um, people in the U.S. are not any happier than people in Costa Rica or Venezuela or Saudi Arabia or, or you know, just slightly more than Mexico. Certainly not any more than Denmark. <clears throat> but, um, you know, they, uh, they, they have a much higher GDP per capita. So all of this additional growth in GDP is not really contributing to, to more well-being. You know, why, why are we doing it? Um, the way we measure <coughs> um, national progress in many countries is GDP, but it's really never, it was never designed as a measure of societal progress or well-being. It really only measures economic activity or income, and only the marketed part of that income, not even whether that income is sustainable. Uh, we need to go well beyond that. There have been some attempts <clears throat> uh, to look at economic welfare and uh, some things called the Index of Sustainable Economic Welfare, or the Genuine Progress Indicator. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. We could take it even one step further and say what we really want is to measure human well-being more directly. You know, and what we want is you know, to, the, uh, <clears throat> to maximize the ratio, we want as much well-being as we can for as little GDP, because GDP is really measuring uh, cost rather than benefit, at least much of it. Um, so here's some interesting results on this genuine progress indicator. Um, it's, it looks like this. It starts with personal consumption expenditures, which are a major component of GDP, but then it weights them by income distribution, because we saw that decreasing returns to income. Um, it adds a few things that are left out of GDP, like the value of household labor and the value of volunteer work. Obviously good things, but they're not marketed. And then it subtracts a whole range of things that are in there that probably shouldn't be. You know, the cost of commuting, the loss of leisure time, the cost of crime. You know, nobody really wants crime to grow, I don't think. Uh, <clears throat> but it is expensive. If crime grows, you have to have more police, you have to have more security devices, you have to have, so GDP goes up but well-being does not. Um, likewise, all of these green things are losses of natural capital, air and water pollution, noise pollution, loss of wetlands, et cetera. Uh, for the United States, it looks like this over time, from 1950 to about 2004 in this case. Uh, at first, the two were fairly highly correlated up until about 1980 or so, after which these, uh, the increasing um, inequality of income, uh, the increasing environmental costs, and other things are, are now uh, you know, outweighing the benefits of that additional growth. So we're now in a period, or have been in the United States since about 1980, of uneconomic growth. So the economy's growing, but it's not really economic because it's not improving well-being or welfare, at least measured in this way. A um, couple of <clears throat> governments have recently adopted the GPI as an official statistic. This, the state of Maryland in the United States has done this, as has the, uh, the state of Vermont. And uh, I would direct you to this website for the Maryland GPI if you want to learn more about what goes into that index. They have a, a very clear description of you know, how it's calculated, where the data came from, and, uh, and also the policies that they're implementing in order to improve their GPI rather than their, their GDP. <clears throat> so I think it's a step definitely in the right direction. There's several other US states uh, that are thinking about doing this. Um, we recently tried to put together uh, data on this and several other indicators for a range of countries around the, around the world. Uh, this is for the United States. You can see there's uh, GDP is this blue line, and this is on a relative scale, so it's just the changes in, uh, in these indicators. 
G GPI <clears throat> is this red one. You can see it's very correlated up until uh, about 1980 or so, and then it levels off. Um, <clears throat> life satisfaction, um, you know, subjective life satisfaction has been going down uh, over that time period. Compare that with China, where <clears throat> GDP has been literally going through the roof. I mean, the, the scale here, you know, this is 350 and this is like 160 there. So <clears throat> it's been going, as we know, through the roof. But <clears throat> their GPI uh, was tracking that until, until about 1995 in their case, after which it's pretty much leveled off. And if you've been to Beijing or Shanghai recently, you know that the air pollution, the water pollution, and the income inequality in China is now as bad as it is in the United States. Uh, so <clears throat> all of those things are, are, are leading to not real progress, uh, even though there's a lot of uneconomic growth going on. So uh, we looked at the GPI for 17 countries for which it had been estimated. Um, guess which one this is? That's us, is it? That's Australia, yeah. So Australia's been doing actually pretty well you know, on this, on this measure and, and on other measures. Um, although it's been decreasing in GPI, it's still well above most other countries in, uh, in the world. So <clears throat> you guys are lucky. Um, <laughs> I think it's both because this is GPI per capita, so it's like you know, and it doesn't really tell you how that is distributed across you know whether, but that it's sort of folded in because GPI is adjusted for income distribution. So if it's very poorly distributed, that would lower the GPI for the same level of, of economic production. So you know, it's been fairly flat <clears throat> over the last couple of decades, but. Uh, increasing slightly, but uh, you know there was a major, major decrease over that period. But compared to some of the other countries, which have you know flattened out uh, much earlier. Anyway, we put all of that together into global GPI and compared that with global GDP per capita, and it looks something like this, similar to the uh, the U.S. picture, where after about 1978, <clears throat> genuine progress has really not been improving uh, per capita. Now part of this is because we've got more people, and the more people, the you know, to spread out this over, uh, <clears throat> this, uh, this production over, then uh, the, the lower the, the, the per capita is going to be. Uh, <clears throat> but we certainly haven't been keeping up uh, and haven't been improving uh, the, uh, the, the genuine progress per capita since about 1978 globally. <clears throat> um, again, there's quite a, you know, variation uh, between countries and even parts of countries. Uh, you know, even though the U.S. had leveled off, we looked at Vermont and, and uh, uh, and other states in the U.S., and there were some states were, that were doing much better than, than others. So, um, <clears throat> but it, it brings us to the point where what, what is it that we're really trying to achieve here? You know, do we, are we really trying to just grow the economy at all costs, or are we trying to you know, uh, improve well-being much more uh, <clears throat> uh, measured in a much more nuanced way? Uh, I know you can't see many of those either, but... Um, this is uh, included in that nature paper that I sent around, and this is just the range of different alternatives to GDP as measures of progress. Uh, this one I mentioned, the, G the GPI is this first one. Uh, there's several others that <coughs> uh, try to do some uh, uh, monetary adjustments. Uh, there's several, including the Australian Unity Wellbeing Index that are based on surveys that, that you take of people. So you know, how they ask people how well they're doing how, and, uh, in various ways. Um, they do that at the global scale as well. And then there's a whole range that look at a, at a number of indicators and try to build a composite index among those indicators. Um, the most interesting one of those is this recent uh, OECD Better Life Index. You might take a look at that on the web. And I think it includes about <clears throat> nine different indicators, you know, including, including housing and income and, and uh, education and environment and civic engagement. Life satisfaction is one of the factors they put in there. But it allows you to also adjust the weights for those different elements and say, well, how would it change if you gave more weight to the environment or, or less weight, et cetera. Uh, <clears throat> Australia actually does fairly well on that, that set of indicators as well, so take a look. Anyway, <clears throat> just to sum up here, um, we know that we live on a finite planet. There are fundamental planetary boundaries, uh, but we also know that we have to produce uh, the maximum elements of well-being and quality of life for the, the population on this planet. So we're really looking for 
what's been called the donut, the sustainable and desirable uh, donut. How do we make sure that we stay in that space? To do that, <clears throat> we have to um, respect the sustainable scale of the, of the economy within, within this, the uh, ecological life support system. We have to create a fairer distribution of resources that, that uh, respects and creates capabilities for flourishing, and we need to have an, a more efficient allocation. So we need an economy that takes into account not just the uh, uh, conventional built capital, but also the other three types of capital that I, that I mentioned uh, in doing any allocation. Uh, the first <clears throat> objection that probably comes up to this is, well, um, can you really have an economy that's not growing? Uh, or isn't everything just going to fall apart you know, without, without growth? The whole economy is built on this presumption of growth. In fact, uh, that's, <clears throat> that's probably true. But um, there are a couple of, of books that, uh, that look at this question and conclude that, yes, you can have an economy that is not growing. You can have prosperity without growth. Um, and this one by Peter Victor, Managing Without Growth, what Peter did was build a computer model of the Canadian economy and uh, <clears throat> asked that model. It was a fairly conventional model. Uh, uh, and he asked, well, <clears throat> could you have a no-growth economy? Certainly, he found that you could have a no-growth disaster if all you did was cut off growth and didn't change anything else. Then you get <clears throat> the results that one might expect. You get rising unemployment, you get rising you know, poverty, rising debt to nature, uh, debt to GDP ratio. Uh, <clears throat> but with the appropriate set of policies, you can also have a, a stable, non-growing uh, economy that has lower unemployment, uh, lower poverty, lower greenhouse gas emissions, et cetera. So this, you know, it's, a, it's feasible to do that. Um, <clears throat> so why don't we make that transition? Well, in fact, I think we are, in a sense, addicted to, this, to the current system that we're in. And overcoming addictions is not, is not an easy process. It's not simply a matter of telling the addict, you know, you're doing the wrong thing and you should stop. Uh, <clears throat> it requires therapy. So it requires a 12-step program. <laughs> so <laughs> these are the 12 steps. This, this is sort of uh, <clears throat> a summary of some of the things that, that, uh, that Peter recommended in, his, in, in order to get to the to the low-grow economy and also some of the things I've already been, uh, been talking about. We need <coughs> new meanings and measures of success, better th things beyond GDP, something like GPI or even beyond that. We need <coughs> um, limits on population, materials, waste, and, and land use to stay within planetary boundaries. We need more meaningful prices, so we need the, the market to tell the truth about the external costs of, of all of the things that we're producing, like the, uh, the true cost example I gave. More durable, more repairable products. Uh, this, <clears throat> this sort of gets at... <laughs> all right, good. <laughs> Anybody object to any of these? Just let me know. <laughs> Fewer status goods, more social goods and, and services. Uh, so we need to get past the idea of the you know, consumption arms race that's driving a lot of the growth and consumption and get people to focus more on the things that actually do make them happy but don't require consumption of more goods and services. More informative advertising. <clears throat> I think a lot of the consumption arms race is driven by advertising which is telling people that you're, you're unhappy and you can't be happy unless you buy this thing that we're, that we're selling. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, particularly banning advertising to children, as they as they've already done in Scandinavia and and, uh, and other places. But I think we could, uh, <clears throat> you know, in the U.S., advertising uh, is is a is a, a routine cost of doing business. It's not taxed in in any way. Uh, so there's lots of things we could to could do to modify advertising, make it make it really information about what the products are are uh, are doing. Better screening of technology. So we want, you know, technology is a good uh, servant, but a poor master. Uh, so we want technology that actually serves our social goals, not, not just uh, <clears throat> leads us to where we may or may not want to go. More efficient capital stock. This is the capital corollary of the more, of the, uh, uh, more efficient, longer lasting uh, goods and services. More local, less global. Um, and this is not just to reduce transportation costs, but the to, to recognize that local economies actually provide social capital and, uh, and maintain ecosystem services better than the globalized uh, economy that we have now. So uh, it contributes to well-being in ways well beyond simply uh, reducing transport costs. 
Um, reduced inequality, we already spent a lot of time talking about that and why that's important. Oops. <clears throat> and less work, more leisure. Anybody object to this one? <laughs> Usually this is the easiest one to sell of all of, all of these, but <clears throat> it also I think implies how do we get truly full employment um, and part of that may be that you know not all of us have to work quite as hard as, as, uh, as we do and you can sort of share, <clears throat> share the work more equitably as, as well as sharing uh, income and, and wealth in other ways more equitably. Doesn't have to be equal but more, uh, more fairly and more equitably. And emphasize that you know uh, there there is a certain optimal work-life balance, and that uh, and that I think most people recognize. And finally, education for life, and not just for work. Recognizing that education itself also improves people's quality of life and, and well-being uh, beyond simply uh, <clears throat> providing the means to get a job and make money and buy things that advertisers tell us we need. Anyway, <clears throat> of course, there are always skeptics out there. <laughs> What if this is all a big hoax and we create this better world for nothing? <laughs> I think this gets back to the original, what I was talking about at the beginning, of our need, the need to really reframe the argument. You know, we spend too much time talking about uh, the, <clears throat> the problems of, of climate change and not enough time, time talking about, you know, if we, this, is, this is something we should really do regardless. You know, this is, we need to create a better world. If we create that better world in the right way, we're going to solve the climate crisis as well as a byproduct. Uh, but I think what can really motivate people is um, this vision of a, better, of a better world and not so much the negative vision of the, of the problems. So <clears throat> we need to break our addiction to the growth at all costs, economic paradigm, fossil fuels, and overconsumption. And to do that, we need to envision this more sustainable and desirable future that emphasizes quality of life and well-being. <clears throat> we started a um, uh, an Alliance for Sustainability and Prosperity. Take a look at this website. This is an, a, an effort to try to bring together all of the many, many groups around the world that are, that are all thinking along the same lines but are not sort of working <coughs> together in a, in a united way. We've started a journal and website called Solutions. Take a look at that. <coughs> this is all uh, free online at the solutionsjournal.org. Uh, that's intended to be a venue for discussing what these real solutions might be. <clears throat> and, um, and we have a book coming out um, this month uh, uh, on this title of Creating a Sustainable and Desirable Future that's a collection of visions of what this future could look like from um, <clears throat> 45 um, uh, contributors uh, around the world. So thanks very much.